And we're live for another episode of Athletic Insights. Athletic Insights is a resource for your youth sports coaches, organizations, parents, players looking to get next level. We're joined here today by PhD, uh, one of my former professors, Xavier Roy. Professor, how are you doing? Doing very, very well, Zach. Uh, thanks for having no, we me. We really appreciate it. So um, for some context for our listeners at home, Professor Roy, or I guess I can call you Xavier now as an yeah. alumni, um, yeah. He's actually came down yeah. to Brockville and lectured before um, about, two, was it two summers ago? Yeah, two summers two ago. Two summers yes. ago. So some of you might be familiar with um, Xavier and, and some of the things he's been able to do. But before we get into uh, the nitty gritty, Xavier, what uh, what has transitioning to online learning been um, as a Bishop's University professor? It's been uh, it's been quite, uh, quite a challenge, but at the same time, it was uh, an opportunity to adapt to um, some very special circumstances. Uh, during the winter semester, I was teaching uh, three, uh, three courses at Bishops, well, teaching uh, exercise physiology, teaching uh, athletic development, and uh, also a level, uh, level four course, um, basically looking at special, uh, special topics uh, in athletic, uh, athletic development, but basically pushing... Uh, uh, pushing some topics that we haven't touched on uh, in the uh, the other courses in uh, that sequence of courses in uh, exercise uh, uh, exercise science or athletic development. Um, so some of them were quite finished or close to uh, to an end when we uh, when the courses uh, on campus were suspended. But then uh, for exercise physiology, I had to transition everything to uh, online, uh, online teaching. So it's been a, it's been a very, uh, uh, very abrupt learning curve. So basically providing your, your content online, recording the videos, and then transitioning to setting up the different quizzes and exams using the resources that were, uh, that were available. So there were some... Uh, some good, some good and bad. So it made it uh, available to uh, all the students back, uh, like back uh, in the comfort of their their own mm-hmm. home. But uh, that uh, contact with uh, with the students was uh, was uh, was lacking, and it, this is it, it is something that I see and miss uh, right now during the spring semester. So when you have the opportunity to teach. A course that is supposed to be very hands-on. So we were supposed to spend maybe 30 minutes uh, in the classroom at the start of a three-hour class, and then spend like over two hours in, either in the gym, uh, in the gymnasium, or uh, outside on Coulter Field, and you don't have that luxury anymore. So it gets uh, it, it it can be a, it can be a challenge. So you have to teach practical applications of athletic development, especially in, in regards to team sports. And you have to sit uh, in front of your computer for three hours. So we have to adjust. Absolutely. And what, what if anything, do you know about um, what, what can students expect for fall semester? I've seen some CJEP, some early CJEP models rolling out where a lot of the learning will be online, but there will also be some in-class learning. Do you know what the plan is for bishops moving forward? Um, we don't have any, uh, we didn't have any communication from, or I would say any uh, direct uh, 
uh, indications from the principal's office in that uh, in that aspect. I know the University of uh, Sherbrooke is looking for an hybrid, uh, uh, like you mentioned, like some uh, some online uh, courses and other some other courses might be uh, uh, taught in person. And I think so far that would be kind of the ideal, maybe the ideal scenario, depending on how the situation evolves. But uh, I spoke with uh, professors Berman, Trump, and Tedeschi. Uh, Uh, two days ago and um, hopefully we will have more opportunities to teach in person than uh, that either hybrid format or uh, distance uh, or online uh, teaching absolutely so i was going to ask you about the pros and cons but that uh, you made that pretty clear there so i think this is a good opportunity to segue um, into your experience as a university athlete so you did your undergrad at uh, sherbrooke quebec uh, is that correct Yes, it is. And so I did my yeah my undergrad in kinesiology at uh, Sherbrooke, and at the time there was a specialization in uh, in sports performance. So this is what I did. Can you say that? what was the specialization in? Sorry. Well, it was a uh, it, in French it's called encadrement sportif. So basically, it was uh, uh, the some of the courses were uh, specialized for uh, students who wanted to go into sports performance or into uh, uh, directing uh, different pro- sports programs or something like that. And then the, the other specialization was working with the general public in terms of general, uh, general health, uh, injury prevention and stuff like that. So we really had two distinct uh, pathways, but now they merged everything into a single pathway. Right. So just to kind of the generic kinesiology degree then? Yeah, exactly. Makes sense. So with respect to your time playing football at Sherbrooke, what was your experience like and what did you, what did you gain from just being a student athlete? Uh, so I spent, I played two years at the university of Sherbrooke with the, uh, with the football team. Right. Um, when I first got there, I was uh, like, I did my CGEP for three years at uh, Vanier college And then at the time, during my first, uh, my first semester, in my first year at Sherbrooke, my roommate uh, was already uh, in the uh, physical education program at Sherbrooke. And he told me that it was manageable to, do, uh, to be a full-time kinesiology student and a full-time student athlete. So this is what I, that is what I did. So I, th- I think the first semester I had like 15, 15 credits over seven or eight, uh, or eight courses. So it was quite of a, it was quite a, quite a challenge to, uh, to deal with uh, the demands of, uh, of the academic and also with the demands of uh, university football. We had like training in the evening, we had meetings, you had, you have games and then there's, uh, different time slots uh, during the course of the day where you you have to go to the gym to perform your your maintenance uh, maintenance training during the season and then uh, the program at Sherbrooke the way it was designed after three semesters you start to you start to alternate between semesters on campus and internships so at that point when I started to have uh, My different internships, um, I was 
was kind of realizing that it would be difficult for me to combine both. So basically, at that time, I decided to really focus on uh, on my studies and focus on my kinesiology degree. So that's why I left uh, after two football seasons at the university. Absolutely. And that might be a, a good time there. So let's just go over your academic journey. Um, I know you said you finished your kinesiology degree, your undergrad at Sherbrooke. Um, yeah. But it, it led you into uh, the field of sports science and research. So why don't we just go over your original master's thesis and then we can go into some of the uh, research that you've continued to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, my, so after I graduated from the uh, University of Sherbrooke, I spent a few months uh, simply, uh, simply working, um, working different jobs. Uh, I got the first, my first opportunity as an athletic development coach or strength and conditioning coach at McGill University. So I started working, uh, working there with the men's and women's basketball team. So the, the thing was in 2000, 2011. So it was only cons- what you could consider a part-time, uh, part-time job. I was working three hours per week with the women's basketball team and then three hours with the men. And then over time... My responsibilities uh, over there expanded to uh, the football team. I uh, was also working um, with the Alpine ski team and the lacrosse, uh, lacrosse team. And then the following, so at the fall semester of 2011, I, decided, I had an interest in uh, the monitoring of training loads. So I applied at the University of Quebec in Montreal uh, because it was it was possible for me to keep keep my job working part-time and be a full-time student at uh, at UCAM so i did that for for 2 years while working at McGill and also uh, started work, working with a high, high school soccer concentration program of the on the north shore of montreal uh, so that allowed me to work a few hours there and then I subbed a little bit as a physical education uh, teacher over there and uh, I was able to to balance both work and study for my master's uh, master's degree and um, with respect to the master's degree what was your thesis well I was interested in monitoring training loads so what I did was um, assess the training loads in the uh, in the weight room uh, for uh, the football players, so we only had a small uh, a small population, and we basically looked at um, I think it was four or six weeks at a at a training uh, training me- meso cycle over a few weeks, and what were the perceived um, perceived exertion or the rate of perceived exertion or RPE of those uh, of those players following certain uh, certain loadings. So, for example, in the literature, they they suggest that usually the the higher the intensity of the resistance uh, training exercises that you do, the higher the uh, rate of perceived exertion. But for my um, for my masters, we had the opposite. So basically, the higher the intensity and the less reps the players were doing, their rate of perceived exertion was actually lower. Then sets uh, then three sets of twelve repetitions right. that they perceive to be more more intense or more difficult. 
and then we just basically what I what I thought was that the timing of that study basically was after the the football season, so they were accustomed to doing less less volume, more intensity. Right. So then when we when we got back to doing three sets of 12 or 10 reps uh it was it was very different from what they had done in the previous months so the stimulus was was different and they perceived it to be uh more more intense right and we have we have a lot of parents Xavier uh parents with young athletes listening to this podcast that don't have the same um vernacular that me and you do with because of our degrees. Yeah. So could you just yeah. give a, a, a layman's term about the difference between a microcycle and a mesocycle so that they can understand? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So to, to, to keep things very simple, a microcycle is usually defined as a, as a week of training. So it's a very, it's usually between five, five or 10 days with classic classically being seven days, just to make it easier uh, on a training schedule. And then a mesocycle is a number of, uh, of weeks. So basically be anywhere between three and six or six to eight weeks would usually consist uh, uh, of a mesocycle. Absolutely. And, and, and one question I have for you, Xavier, a personal question. You had mentioned um, earlier during the podcast that you had decided to kind of go all in on your academics and your school and step away from sports yeah. what kind of things were you weighing during that decision because that's that's very common i mean i took my last year off to focus on research with with you and professor uh nicola berryman so it's something i'm i understand but not everybody can make that choice um at that time like looking back at after a few uh, a few years and reading on coaching and reading on learning i kind of came to the realization that my uh, my journey as a football player was basically kind of most likely based on how good an athlete i was i think i had i had decent decent speed and i was kind of a very athletic defensive player so i was playing uh, outside linebacker and play a little bit as a as a at the safety position at the uh, at the CJEP and also when I was playing um, uh, in midget uh, midget and bantam so played different positions mm -hmm. but over time I kind of figured that I relied too much on my athletic abilities and that I maybe lacked the understanding of the game at that time and when I look at how the players are, are coached or being taught the game of football nowadays they have a much better understanding of the under much better understanding than what I had of the game. Fair enough. So basically sorry about that. So basically um, I think at some point was a a mix of not being able to, to play and then trying to deal with the high expectations that I had uh, on myself from an academic standpoint. And during my first year of undergrad, I kind of felt that I was getting good grades, but not really grasping the different concepts that I was seeing. So 
I decided to like step away uh, from uh, from football after after two years. Tried to um, tried to transfer to another university that didn't work, uh, and then decided to stay at Sherbrooke, finish my degree. So transferring to another university would have uh, asked uh, of me that I maybe do a few semesters more and I wasn't willing to not waste but take one or two extra years of being at the university just to play football it wasn't as high as a priority at that point in time in my in my life than it was uh, maybe when I transition or the transition between midget and CJEP or CJEP and university. Right. Very well said. Um, so we'll switch gears here, and I want to go into speed development a little bit. So for, so for the listeners at home, um, a lot of what makes me a really good coach came from paying attention and really focusing in, in the classes that Xavier was teaching me at Bishop's, um, specifically an athletic development class I really took a liking to. So um, for the young athletes listening to this, I want you to, to get a pen and paper out because you're getting uh, you're getting free education from the horse's mouth. So with respect to speed development, what are uh, what are what's your philosophy and, and some tips for young athletes? Uh, when we talk about sprinting, sprinting speed, the most specific training exercise or training activity that you can do is is to is to sprint or go as fast as you can if if you want to be fast you gotta you gotta sprint fast um you gotta jump you gotta be able to to do a lot of things fast and then i'd like to simplify sprint sprint training into three different components this is basically looking at at re- academic research looking at the what other coaches that are have way more experience and knowledge than I do and how they summarize and they work with the athletes that they work with both in team sports and also in in athletics so basically you have the first component would be to apply force into the ground in uh, as little time as possible the second one would be uh, appropriate postures and the third component would be skill acquisition and refinement that's kind of how i like to simplify it so basically when you look at force application there's the there are muscles that are responsible for producing force and there are other muscles or uh, that are responsible for transmitting those forces into the ground and so the force producers you look at quadriceps glutes hamstrings and plantar flexors or the 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 calf muscles and then the the muscles that are responsible for transmitting those forces so the muscles surrounding the ankles so making sure that the ankles are are stiff when they when you when they touch the ground and then you have um the core uh, core muscles or trunk musculature so basically anything from the pelvis all the way to the um to the abdominal muscles the erector spinae muscles. So all those muscles are responsible for the force transmission from the legs through the trunk to the extremities. For and sure. Then, so, if, so then if you can get strong, explosive, and also 
there's a component of mobility and flexibility that is that is helpful as well. So if you can train those muscles to be strong and be explosive in different directions, this is going to help. But you need to support that with uh, different uh, different running or sprinting exercises. So. Yeah, so some of the, I guess, the philosophy I take towards um, developing speed is, first of all, if I can get an athlete stronger, they're going to be a little bit faster by default. Um, And then one of the things I really remember actually from your class was uh, the importance of resisted sprinting, whether it be resistance bands or heavy sleds. Um, But the fact that I think it was uh, 70% of the high load is the only one of the only ways to improve your your acceleration or your drive phase? Could you comment on that for me? Um, for 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 resistance sprinting, there are different uh, different ways. You don't you don't have to only use uh, only use sleds. You can use you, you can use like elastic bands. You can use uh, uh, uphill uh, uphill sprinting. You can use uh, st- uh, different starting uh, starting positions where you have to overcome inertia and generate a little bit more, a uh, little bit more strength. Uh, basically, um, any any short sprints will focus more on uh, on strength, and then you work on top speed mechanics uh, by performing longer longer sprints or over longer distances. Uh, when you look at the at the research, I would say you have proponents of using body weight. Others will use decrements of of speed over different distances i like to keep things simple and and use different percentages of of body weight so basically the heavier you will go you'll focus on start and acceleration then if you use moderate weight or resistance uh, you will most likely work on that transition from acceleration to top speed mm-hmm. and if you really work top speed you want to run as fast as you can, so that extra resistance need, needs to be quite, quite low. Right. Um, that, was, uh, that was awesome. Thank you. One thing, uh, one other thing I want to ask you about from actually a different class we were in is just creating culture. I know we didn't talk much about that over the week, but I really liked the, I forget the guy's name, but there was the model with the forming, the norming, the storming, and the adjoining. Um, could we touch base on that a little bit? Because a lot of uh, a lot of our listeners, Xavier, are youth sports coaches looking to develop culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think uh, the, the the that was from Wade Gilbert's book. So the first uh, the first thing that you would need to do as a coach is really establish uh, establish that culture. You need to have a good a good meeting with the players with the with the staff and really understand uh, what are their uh, individual goals and really make sure that they understand uh, the, the vision of the team and basically what are some of the behaviors that are acceptable and what are the other behaviors that are not acceptable uh, as part of the function. So when you look at, um, at culture, you'll see our coaches – uh, state how important it is to bring the right people together and not only the the best people so you have to to have people with the right uh, the right mindset the right skill set 
that embrace the the vision and that they can rally behind the 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 vision and where the team is heading so this is crucial for the coach to establish that culture early in uh, uh, in that in the cycle the life cycle of a team so usually you would do that in the preseason so by meeting with uh, with the athletes uh, with the coaches with the sports staff both uh, individually or as a team so you would establish those the behaviors that you would like the athletes and the um, the other members of the team to uh, behaviors that they need to act upon and then you would have the team uh, design or select what is their vision what are the behaviors what are the different goals that they want to achieve at some point during that process there's going to be to be conflict which is which is normal this is going to to drive the growth of uh, of the team and the growth of the individuals so because they will need to rally behind behind some behind a cause that they all need to work together for the benefit of uh, of the team in um, achieving the goals and uh, enacting the vision and then once they achieve the goal even if they or if they basically perform to the 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 best that they of their abilities or the best that they can even though they might not have achieved the performance goals that they had set before they can be satisfied if they played um, and enacted the vision and enacted the behaviors that they had set at the beginning of the season but then you need to uh, acknowledge the contribution of all the different individuals on the team and then you need to celebrate what they have uh, they have achieved and use that trend that transition time to really reflect on what happened during the course of of the previous season and now what you need to do in order to get better for the following season right and one of one of the issues just in general with creating culture on youth sports teams is that I mean, generically, you have one season and then the, season, the team's done and then they might be to a next sport and to a next sport to the next sport. But what do you think like the most sustainable cultures do differently? So if you were going to look at the All Blacks, the rugby program, which has a deep cultural aspect to their success, is there something that those programs do differently? No, you're not asking me. A, <laughs> like, a, you're asking me a good question. I've never never been a part of the all blacks so basically studied studied what they do by reading different articles and looking at different uh, different books or different authors that I've uh, wrote about the all blacks but it's basically they stick to stick to their culture of no no dickhead so basically be developing very good uh, very good people and for everything that they do is for the benefit uh, benefit of the team. Um, I would say for 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 youth sports, like for sure, the, usually the first thing that these young kids want when they participate in team sports is to have fun. Uh, as a as a coach, I would recommend that coach young coach young coaches or coaches working with youth athletes like they really take the time to ask them what they what they want from from that season if they are looking for mostly for 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 fun 
like try to design training sessions, training activities that uh, replicate that fun aspect, okay? And set, set different goals and expectations that reflect the fact that they want to have fun. If you work with athletes that are a little bit more performance-oriented, well, now you can, you can start and uh, set different, different performance objectives, but involve, start to involve them in that process so that they feel that they have a voice and that it's not only the coach that makes all the decisions uh, in terms of training design, in terms of uh, how they should dress or what they, what they should do before a game or uh, what, they, what, what they can do or where they, they want to celebrate a, a championship or something like that. So really involve them in that, uh, in that process as well so they'll have a, a voice in the establishment of that culture. And this is going to be a, a much, more for, much more fun season for them. Yeah, and I think all youth sports programs should adopt that model before tryouts start. Because what happens is the kids go into tryouts just stressed trying to make the team. The teams get finalized, and then they're playing catch-up, trying to create culture before week one game starts. So I think just a piece of advice for the, the youth sports coach coaches listening to this podcast would be have a, t- a general team meeting before the onset of tryouts. I mean, the AAA teams might be a little different because there's an objective to win, but the house non-competitive teams, I think that could be a really, uh, really good application, really good uh, rule there. Um, but the last thing I have for you here, Xavier, is what would just be a general take-home message you have for young athletes that are trying to develop, they're just trying to get a little bit better and potentially get next level? Uh, a general, So one take-home message is... Um... I would say you have to you have to be a learner, so you have to be open to uh, making mistakes, learning from those mis- from those mistakes, and you have to be involved in in the process. It's not only the 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 it's not the coach is not going to tell you everything that he or she knows. And you're just there and you absorb everything. There needs to be a cognitive com- commitment from you as a young athlete to wanting to be, to be better. So it's asking questions and it's asking the coach uh, what you can do to, to get better, both from a physical standpoint, but also from a technical standpoint, a psychological standpoint, and from a... a I would say from a social, emotional aspect. So basically, how can you better deal with adults, deal with your teammates, uh, deal with uh, different situations that uh, might occur during the course of the, of the season, during the course of a game or something like that. So it's really wanting to, to get better and try to absorb as much as you can and really be involved in that learning process. It's... You cannot be there and, like you said, drink from, uh, uh, absorb everything, or drink from uh, from the hose and think that you're from the water hose and think that you are going to get better. You need to be an active learner, an active participant in your uh, your development as a young athlete. Absolutely, you've got to want it. Um, so this was season two, episode 11 of Athletic Insights. I'm already excited to have you on uh, in the future. Thank you so much for your time, Xavier. 
thank you, uh, Zach, for uh, having me and um, looking forward to uh, the other episodes that you'll have for your listeners. And we're out.